Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 20. Uh, I'm going to read the first four verses which we covered last week because it sets the tone for the remainder of the chapter. It says, When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people and say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight you or, or to fight for you against your enemies to save you. There's a lot of practical application uh, there. Certainly, historically, the nation of Israel facing, uh, you know, uh, militarized foes, you know, real, actual combat, uh, a lot of fear involved in that, especially uh, some of them were giants. The, the people that they had to face were 9 and 11 feet tall and uh, lived inside fortified cities, really, really frightening. Uh, encounters that they had to face, um, you know, not to, uh, you know, be negative in any way, but also, you know, they were uh, physically a, a short people in stature. So, so, you know, those who are meek, those who are small going up against those who are violent and giant. Um, you know, you look around the world today and, you know, my, my wife is wrestling with an entire nation's government over whether she's going to be able to continue to go to school you know she's she has invested herself in this medical study from nursing and uh, now somebody you know is just telling her oh yeah well that's all going to get thrown away you know and many of us have jobs that are under threat our, our nation our economy we look around communism uh, leftism is just bulldozing everything right into a trash heap and uh, you know your heart can sink you, you can you can be fearful. God is in control. He is with you. you know, this is the promise. Oh, you know what we were talking about just as we started, and, and what is being stated here: the God who delivered the nation of Israel from Egypt is our God, and He is full well capable of handling all of these things. Stand in the righteousness of Christ. Choose His will. Choose His way, and let the chips fall where they may. The the Lord. We'll see you through it, right? I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, uh, you know, that fiery furnace. We're reading Hebrews um, on our evening uh, midweek service. And, uh, you know, you, you have them put forth as an example how they, they quenched the flames. And uh, how did they quench the flames? Well, it's I love the boldness as uh, they're being told they have to worship this pagan image. And they say, you know, we're not going to do that. I'm paraphrasing all of this. And um, uh, they stand before the king and they make that very defiant statement where they say, you know, we're, we're going to be delivered from you. You know, it may be by the flames, <laughs> you know, as they consume us. Or it may be through the flames that the Lord miraculously preserves us. They don't know. They don't go into it. You know, I'm always blessed by people that go in with a confidence and the outcome is as they predict. You know, the Lord is going to give us victory and they charge out the other side. Wonderful. Um, there are others who get soundly defeated. God is still on the throne. And, and, and if we follow him in obedience, we receive that blessing, you know, regardless of what is happening. Um, I'm trying to remember the name. Uh, you know, we've we've seen uh, the you know the bakers uh, who refuse to do cakes for homosexual weddings and different things. What you, you know, the media is not going to tell you is that uh, they were inundated with business. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They they stand up and okay, you know, there are losses and the courts rule against them, but they can't keep up with you know the business and the work and what the Lord is blessing them with. Doctor Bragdon. Uh, and, you know, some of you from the area might remember in the late 80s, uh, he refused to uh, do dental work in Bangor on a woman who had AIDS. And uh, oh, that was, you know, him uh, discriminating against her. 
you know, he documented full well that what he had said and what was going on was, I don't have the facility in my dentist practice to do this. We have to make arrangements to do this at Eastern Maine Medical Center in a surgical setting, right? But because he wouldn't do it in his office, that was discrimination. Imagine, like, would you go to a dental office where you knew the dentist was practicing on people? Not just HIV positive, they're sick with AIDS, right? You're going to protect your family. This man was protecting her, protecting his clients. He was sued and he lost, right? Had to pay a massive sum of money. But as a result, his business was thriving to, to stand up. You know, he loved the woman who was struggling with that illness, wanted to care for her as a Christian. You know, he was being persecuted for discriminating. Imagine how insane, you know, our words stand up uh, for what we're supposed to stand up for. And, and then you need to, right? You got to go to the priests. The priests need to be present encouraging the people. The spiritual leadership needs to be present encouraging us, okay? You know, you, you, you get a whole bunch of people, especially right now with the mandates that are saying, well, we really don't need to go to church, okay? Uh, Proverbs warns us, the man who, who isolates himself, the woman, the person who isolates themselves, right, seeks their own desire and rages against all sound judgment. Uh, if you isolate yourself from the body of Christ, then all you get to deal with is your own thought process. And I think every one of us has proven to ourselves that's not always very healthy. We need others in our lives as sounding boards, as encouragers, as discouragers to say, I don't think you should be involved in that, right? And there, there are things we need from one another. Fellowship. You know, thank goodness for Online streaming, it gets the message out there, but the interaction is gone, right? And that's what Hebrews 10 is telling us about we, we should not, we must not forsake the gathering together of the saints. And I've talked to you about how that gathering together is the interlocking for functional work, right? All the parts of your car are assembled together, right? You don't have a car if the parts are just strewn all over the garage, Right? Somebody's just come in with a big tool kit and torn everything down. And you say, well, here's my car. I've got to go to work. It's not going to work for you. So it is with the body of Christ. We must be assembled together. That's a commandment from our Lord. Right? You say, well, it's not right. I say Hebrews. Jesus didn't say, uh, all scripture is given. Right? God breathed. Uh, we need to obey that. And we need to encourage one another to obey that. Distance is... Very, very difficult for the body of Christ. Verse 5 then says, Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, What man is there who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. Also, what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten it. Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man eat of it. And what man is there who is betrothed to a woman and has not married? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man marry her. Now, listen, there are a couple of things we need to understand about this. Because most of us are thinking like, wait, I've heard and read some stuff in the New Testament that doesn't exactly sync up with this. Well, uh, what you're dealing with here is the physical realm, physical battle, right? Jesus is addressing the kingdom and the spiritual aspects of these things. And he's saying in the New Testament, you know, you need to leave behind your wife, leave behind your home, leave behind your field and your oxen and come follow me. It's a necessity, right? What would it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? You know, physical battle is different than the spiritual battle. There needs to be a commitment spiritually, an unwavering commitment to the spiritual aspects of our relationship 
with God. You need to hear in this the same mercy, right? It comes down to, you know, losing your life physically. The Lord is saying to the nation of Israel, be better that you stayed at home and took care of these things. Why? More than anything, what he says is that your being discouraged in the battle will discourage the others in the battle. There needs to be a singularity, a unity in the fight. I have seen this physically in the church over and over and over again uh, since I started you know, working in the church. Some people, grumblers, we've talked about this a few different ways. Um, a Barna Research Group doing studies on church splits. Okay, No matter how large the church, this is an astonishing fact, no matter how large the church, thousands, you know, mega churches, when they suffer a split, they do the research and find that at the core it was seven or less people that were causing the grumbling and generated the destruction. Right? Seven people just whining and complaining and creating division and trouble. That's really, really destructive to the body of Christ. You know, I hear people say, well, you know, there was this problem, that problem. Then you should have packed your junk and left. Gone someplace else and served there, right? Because, because in affecting that whole group of people, you diminished the whole work of that body. You create the destruction, you create the division, then, then the effective, whatever effectiveness was there is gone. It's a terrible thing. You, you don't want to go into battle with a group of people, shoulder to shoulder, somebody's complaining, you turn around, nobody's next to you. <laughs> You're the only person left on the battlefield. The Lord wants that unity, and we should hear within that his encouragement in this regard, officer shall speak further. Uh, the officer shall speak further to the people, verse eight, and say, "What man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted?" So this is what we get right down to. Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. And it shall be when the officers have finished speaking to the people that they shall make captains of the armies and lead the people. Excuse me. So, something to take note of, we'll sort of look at this in two sections. Something to take note of is the establishment of leadership. They, they're making the proclamation that there's already officers. So there's an understanding that there's going to be leadership. And then within that leadership, as the circumstances arise, they then need to appoint leadership within the groups. Uh, Jesus Christ is a huge fan of this. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But, uh, you know, the, the need within the body of Christ for leadership. Uh, you know, there, we live in a culture, I, I guess it's just human nature, but also our culture, it, it, it uh, venerates rebellion. You know, it, it, it lifts rebellion up like it's a virtue. You know, that, uh, you know, as America, you know, we're American rebels. You know, there, there is a problem with the fact that this nation was birthed in rebellion. Okay. Uh, in that, you're going to be very careful to understand that the men who rebelled were rebelling against sin. Okay. They were rebelling against tyranny. They were rebelling against demonic leadership they, they weren't uh, they were not rebelling against godly authorities that had been placed over them you guys have seen maybe recently <clears throat> um, the white flag with the green pine tree sometimes it says an appeal to heaven or it might just have the blue star uh, on it a lot of people are unaware of the whole backstory behind that. Um, George Washington uh, commissioned that flag. This is very important, very significant, not just a political rant. Please, please hear me in this. What was going on is particularly 
in Maine and Massachusetts, there was a tremendous amount of lumber being harvested for shipbuilding. And the king uh, had claimed all of the white pines in North America, but particularly New England, Massachusetts, and Maine in particular, that were over 24 inches uh, in uh, diameter. So, so if it was over 24 inches, King said that belongs uh, to me. Um, the locals didn't listen to that much. <laughs> I mean, it's your land. Nobody's here. They're harvesting the timber, and they're using it. Right? And the reason the king wanted it was for the masts of his ships, these very tall white pines. And um, so the king, recognizing that it wasn't being obeyed, uh, sent his surveyors and, and said, and now if you're going to harvest the land, um, then the king, you have to notify the king and he'll send his surveyors to your property and they will go through your entire property and they will put this three-strike hatchet mark uh, signifying the crown uh, uh, on the tree, and uh, then no one can touch that tree. And you can harvest everything else uh, but, but that tree. And, of course, the harvesting continued. And so the king did two things at that point. He said anything over 12 inches now belongs. So, that I mean, that reduces the harvesting to, you know, next to nothing. And uh, so anything over 12 inches belongs to the king, and now you cannot harvest your land at all. Uh, the king's surveyors are going to come through and they're going to mark all properties and all of these. Imagine going through the entire state of Maine and Massachusetts and marking every tree, or every white pine over 12 inches. Like that, that's going to be time consuming. Well, here's the deal. Um, the king's surveyors showed up and tried to enforce this on one particular lumber company. And just, I mean, one of the last things you want to do is try to attack loggers uh, in the state of Maine alone in the woods. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just, uh, there's not a really brilliant idea. So um, they throttled the men, uh, the, the king's surveyors. Uh, they cut the tails off from their horses, the ears off their horses and tied the men to their horses and drove them away. That was actually where the war between England and America began. George Washington then began to harvest those pine trees and to build for himself a small fleet of Corsair-class ships with those pine trees as the masts. And he commissioned that flag and had it placed on the masts of those ships. That pine tree represents the pine trees they were harvesting. And the appeal to heaven was his statement that when the leadership of any country becomes so sinful and tyrannical, all you are left with is to take up arms and appeal to heaven. Consider that, right? As we today are witnessing what's going on. And you see those, a lot of people put that on their vehicle, wear that, have that, and don't even know the significance of what was going on in, in those circumstances. Uh, we had in that situation... God-given leadership, right? And people say, oh, founding fathers, not Christians. They were just deists. They believed in a God. Okay, a couple of them, right, particularly Ben Franklin confuses me a little bit with certain behaviors uh, along the way, certain things that he said. You know, Jackson, uh, you got some questions there. George Washington, read his prayer journals. Okay. Born again, died in the wool, hardcore Christian, praying and fasting continuously uh, for the process that he was carrying out. What he did militarily, he did financially out of his own pocket. No one was paying him in the process, and he also knew if he failed, they were going to hang him. Right? He sacrificed his life in order to birth this nation of freedom a nation that allows us to sit here this morning and worship Jesus Christ. 
the tyranny grew to a point where they said, we will no longer obey this devilish behavior. We're, we're going to free ourselves from that tyranny. And interestingly enough, you can rewind a little further. You didn't know you were going to history class this morning. You can rewind a little further prior to all of that. And what you find is a man by the name of William Tennant. William Tennant was here in the, uh, around, well, he was throughout 17, the mid-1700s. Uh, he was recognizing what the Holy Spirit was doing in the hearts and minds of young men around him as they desired to minister to the people of this nation. But the law of England, part of that tyranny, said you cannot be a minister unless you are licensed and you can't be licensed unless you've gone to school in Europe. Right? Tenet said the word of God doesn't recognize borders like that and he began to train young men here in America. Um, he, he started his first class at 5 o'clock in the morning, every morning teaching uh, Greek and then extended into Hebrew. Classes went until 8.30 at night. Every day. Except for the Sabbath when they would worship together. Tenant trained the ministers who preached to men like George Washington. Right? And that is what lit the fire in their souls to free themselves from the tyranny of England. The, the colleges and the universities in England, in Europe, mocked Tennant and referred to his colleges as the log colleges because they were meeting in log cabins and in houses as he was training the young men here in America. There is... Um, miraculous stuff that went on, including the fact that his son didn't want to join him in the ministry, knew the word, knew the original languages as well as tenant, but didn't have a committed heart the way that his father did, got sick and died. He was dead for three days, right? Documented. His body was decomposing and then the Lord resurrected him. He immediately entered the ministry with his father and began to train and teach the young men the way that his father was teaching them. These are the spiritual backgrounds that birthed this nation, right? There's a book, you might want to write the title down, called A Vision That Changed a Nation. It's the biography of William Tennant and his life and what went on. Remarkable. Those log colleges faded into obscurity. Things you know, you've know you never heard of like Princeton, Dartmouth, Yale, Harvard. Those were the colleges that Tennant started that continued on, right? They, they were minister and missionary training schools when they began. They were, they were teaching young men and women uh, to minister to the Lord. Dartmouth, interestingly enough, was a college where they um, taught Native Americans uh, the word of God in their native language and in English. So they were teaching them English, and they were also teaching them in their native language. So, so a tremendous effort uh, to, to bring... Uh, those young men and women into the faith very lovingly, you know, uh, unlike what, you know, some other denominations did of forcible application and very cruel methodology. Uh, the men and women that were working amongst them in the early and mid 1700s uh, were showing them the love and the grace of God. So, you know, uh, rebellion, leadership, there needs to be leadership. You know, I, I, you know, the, the revolution that occurred here in America was simultaneously spurred worldwide. Okay, the, the world watched as America was birthed from England and everybody came, became infatuated with rebellion and revolution, right? I, I mean, what, what did revolution and rebellion birth in France, right? I mean, the symbol there, what, what is a symbol of American freedom, right? The eagle, you know, 
Betsy Ross's flag, freedom, right? Ultimately, the destruction of slavery. Right? What did France produce? What's, a, what's, a, what's the single symbol of the French Revolution that comes to mind? The guillotine, right? Very similar thing uh, simultaneously going on uh, inside uh, Russia. You know, what piles of bodies and tyranny, you know, communism birthed out of it. Why? Because they were just infatuated with revolution and rebellion. They weren't focused on a relationship with the Lord. They weren't focused upon uh, divine uh, inspiration. They, they weren't looking at uh, uh, quelling evil. It was just throw off leadership, throw off authority, and, and you know, become your own entity. That, that is not what the Lord is calling us to. That is not what the Lord is calling these people to, Right? There is already authority within the nation. Let the officers establish officers over the people. So, so you've already got a, a, an organization of authority the Lord is putting here. Uh, there's, uh, the, the place where I recognize this as the biggest problem is within the church. <clears throat> people don't want to recognize authority or submit to authority. And, and it results in really terrible things in the individual's lives and within the church corporately. So, um, uh, this idea of if someone doesn't want to be here, I guess the second phase of what I started to say, if they're fearful and they don't want to be here, they should leave. You know, take Gideon, right? We get further down the road, we get to Judges chapter 6, and you have this innumerable Midianite army that, it, there are so many millions of them. There are so many of them that when they move through the land, just their foot traffic with their their livestock and the people destroys the land. Just going through, they destroy the land. And the Lord calls Gideon to go up against them, and he he starts with tens of thousands, and the Lord says too many, and, and you know send people home. You just tell them first thing. Just tell them if they don't want to be here, leave. You know, and, and he, he gets right down to that whole thing of, you know, let them, you know, get a drink of water out of the brook. And, you know, if they, if they you know, knelt down and put their hand in the water and brought it up to their mouth, they could stay. If they laid right down and sucked the water out, then just send them home. And what's he end up with? 300 against countless millions. 300, you know. If you see the movie 300, what a joke. Absolutely ridiculous. Historical fiction, uh, truth of God's word, 300 men went with Gideon. They defeated the Midianite army. Why? Because the point was God's strength was going to overcome them. They didn't have to do as much as they normally would have, right? God just causes an insanity and they attack one another and destroy one another. It's really amazing. There are two movies regarding Israel and the way the Lord has preserved them. Um, Beyond Measure is a really great movie. You can see um, historic facts that nobody uh, wants to tell us about. Um, 1976, as their Arab neighbors are invading to destroy them, uh, large battalions, uh, mostly out of uh, Syria and out of Lebanon, said that as they were moving through the desert, Abraham appeared in the desert in front of them and said, stop, turn around, you're not supposed to do this, go home, and they obeyed. Later, when they were asked, you know, why didn't you join the battle? They said, Abraham met us in the desert, told us to turn around and go home. And everybody was left asking them, like, are you crazy? Like, like what do you mean Abraham met you? A Abraham, our founding father, met us in the desert, told us to go home. How did you know it was Abraham? And then they're all standing around going, yeah, that's a good question. <coughs> Think about this. Not just in one location, all across the north as they're invading, Abraham meets all of these masses and says, stop, turn around, go home. And they did. They obeyed as though, as though it were the voice of God told them to go home. You know, we, we often hear the presentation that Israel has you know, preserved itself through, you know, the the 
military prowess. You know, they're, they're just so incredible as an army. You know, in that movie, you watch as this small squad was uh, supposed to go and carry out this guerrilla raid on this small compound, and they get a little lost, and in the midst of it, they get overrun by a, uh, a, a another group, a large group of uh, Arab invaders, and they flee into the desert to try and hide. They get off the road, they flee into the desert, they're several hundred yards into the desert, hunkered down, hiding when they realize they're in the middle of a minefield. In their fear, they've fled into the minefield. Okay? They all aren't faithful believers, but out of fear, they begin to pray. After the Arabs leave, massive sandstorm comes up, and they're all thinking, like, how bad can it be? You know, we're out here trying to do this. We get run off the road. Now we're hiding. We're in a minefield. And now there's this sandstorm. So they just hunker down and wait for the storm to pass. When the storm is done and they uncover themselves and look up, the sand's all gone and all of the mines are just sitting on top of the ground. They're able to just walk out over and over again. Right? God's provision in the process. Again, the God that brought them out of Egypt is the God that they serve, the God that we serve. And, and if your heart is not in it, then you need to depart. You shouldn't be part of the process. If you aren't fully committed, then you need to go home. Why? Because you're going to discourage everybody else. And boy, the nation of Israel has learned the power of discouragement, right? Send 12 spies. Two come back and say, we can do it. Ten come back and say, we're going to get killed. And the whole nation, right? The whole nation, millions of people join them in their negativity. And they spend 38 years wandering in the desert and dying until that generation is purged from their midst. Much better off to be with a small group of faithful than a large group of faithless. Let the Lord minister to you as he sees fit. In regard to this, Luke chapter 9, verse 62, Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Has the Lord called you into the kingdom? Did you, did you have the carpet yanked out from underneath you somewhere along the way? Or that happens. It does. People will betray you. Bad things will happen. Life's circumstances will just stack up to the degree that you're literally looking at it like, what is wrong with me? You know, what is wrong with God? What in the world is going on? God is as faithful as he's ever been. I mean, Job is the perfect example, right? And here is a guy who, you know, the bad news just all comes in one day. Your flocks have been wiped out. Your kids have all been killed. Your home is destroyed. You have nothing, and that extends until you've lost your health. You know, the poor guy is without anything except for his deeply encouraging wife, you know, and uh, he's sitting in an ash heap, and he's scraping boils off from his body with a broken shard of pottery. And what does Job say in this circumstance, right? Though he slay me, yet will I praise him. Why? Because Job understands none of this is from God. Yes, these are horrible, and they are supernatural experiences. Uh, the, the behind the scenes is nutty, isn't it? If you've studied that, you look into the throne room, and there's the devil before God, and God provokes the situation. When, when we read... Have you examined my servant Job? The term is literally, have you militarily examined in order to attack my servant Job? Thanks for nothing, you know what I'm saying? Just <clears throat> And Satan literally unleashes hell on his life. God is still on the throne. God is still good. 
you know, the, the circumstances lie to us, do they not? They tell us all kinds of things that are not true. We need to learn to trust the Lord and not be disheartened. If you've committed yourself and you've faltered away, recommit yourself. Matthew chapter 5, verse 37, Jesus said, Let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. We, if, if you said, yes, I'm following, I'm serving, I'm doing. Um, if you've faltered in that, don't be discouraged. Pick up, turn around, follow the Lord. Recommit yourself to what the Lord you know, opened to you as an opportunity. Let, let him carry you through the process. Verse 10, when you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. And it shall be that if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute and serve you. Now, if the city will not make peace with you, but war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. But the women, the little ones, the livestock, and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall plunder for yourself, and you shall eat the enemy's plunder, which the Lord your God gives you. Thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you, which are not the cities of these nations. So that last qualifying element is very important. So destroy what can be a threat to you, right? The men, but the weak and the innocent, leave them alone. Do not destroy them. Why? Because there's a great distance between the nation of Israel and those being described here, right? Continuing on, you're going to see the Lord say, anything that's near you has to be utterly destroyed, right? Uh, spiritual application, there are things in this world that we do not have to go and attack, okay? You know, if, if it is directly affecting you, you know, to the point where it would cause you to fail, to stumble, and to sin, you have to address it. You cannot leave it unaddressed. It will destroy you in the process. Read what follows here in verse 16. But the cities of these people, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. The spiritual influence. That's what the Lord is worried about. If they're physically far enough away, it really doesn't matter what nonsense is going on. If it's abominable and can attack you, address that issue. If it's close to you, where it can have an effect upon you, continuously, you have to utterly destroy it. There can be no compromise within this at all. You'll have to stretch your own mind and imagination as to how that applies spiritually for you, but I think it's fairly simple to understand that the things in your environment that can cause you personally to engage in sin, to falter in your relationship with the Lord, you have to deal with them and get rid of them. You cannot leave them in your life. The example I always use is relationships. Uh, when I first came to the Lord, there were many things that I had to purge out of my life. And one of the last things that I got rid of was relationships. There were certain people I had known and loved for so long that I kept them in my life. And what I discovered as a young Christian was when I was in my worst moment, right? And we all have those moments, don't we? You'll be in the flesh, you've drifted, you're not doing the things you should, 
your head's in the wrong place, and I would get a phone call. Yes. And I'd think, yeah, I do want to hang out with this person. Not even considering what was going to follow, right? Maybe somewhere in the back of my mind, but right on the surface, that wasn't there. Just, yep, this is the, this, <laughs> the place where I'm right now. This is the perfect person for me to go hang out with. And failure, sin, straight up, backsliding. And I would find myself wrecked and ruined hours, days, weeks, unfortunately, sometimes months later. And I woke up to that. I realized, you know, the correlation between when I'm in a terrible place and when wouldn't hear from them for months, wouldn't hear from them for massive, long, extended periods of time. When I'm at my worst point, here's the phone call. I went through my phone and I started to delete these names. And then I realized, oh, they're going to still be able to call me, right? So what I started doing was putting in front of their name, do not answer this phone call. And their name, put that in as the contact. <laughs> do not answer this phone call and then their name. And I just went through, like, yeah, that's, that's a good idea. I'll do that. And it was a long time later. And I had drifted. And I had faltered. And I was weak. And my phone rang. And it had been so long that I looked at that name for a few seconds, like, what does that mean? Do not answer this phone call. I had forgotten. I had done that. I'm like halfway answering, like, I, what is this? And I remember, and it all comes clear to me. Do not take this phone call right now. At least be obedient enough to not do that. And I just declined the call. And sure enough, they call back and call back. And then you're like really tempted, like maybe something's wrong. Right. <clears throat> yeah, something's wrong <laughs> right here. Something's desperately wrong. And I need to not answer the call. And I need to get my Bible. And I need to get my notebook. And I need to get alone with the Lord. And get myself where I need to be again. Cutting off those relationships. Destroying those circumstances and those opportunities of failure. Listen, you know, if you're looking at me as a pastor and thinking like, well, backsliding, how bad could it have been? As bad as you can possibly imagine. And if that shocks you, just dig into your own heart and tell me it's not there. Right? We have to protect ourselves against ourselves. And that's exactly what's going on here. Are they in close proximity to you? Kill them all. That is what the Lord is saying. Get rid of everything that is associated with that which will destroy your relationship with me. They're a long ways away, have little effect upon you, then only attack and destroy that which can attack and destroy you. You don't have to go out and purge the world of its sinfulness because that's always going to be there. That's always going to be there. Paul, in the New Testament, talking about the sin within the church, right? The man who's in sexual sin says, put that guy out. That his body would be destroyed, that his soul might be saved. Right? He has he has the desire to see that man restored to the Lord. He doesn't he doesn't have an arrogant, self-righteous tone of I'm better than you, so we're kicking you out of church. He has the tone of we want to see this man get right with God. And then he moves into the discussion of judgment within the church. And he says, within the church, you should be carrying out church discipline in this manner but outside the church we don't have anything to do with judging the world nothing to do with judging the world and we've reversed that process the church by and large wants to you know get their picket signs out and go out there and scream and holler at the heathens about how they're going to hell and you know judge them but inside the church when somebody's in gross sin we just turn a blind eye and let it happen we need to address the things that are close to home. Amen? The things that will destroy us and destroy one another. And you go out there and what's attacking you, you deal with. Right? 
when they tell you you can't come to church anymore. You have to stay home. No more of you Christians gathering together and singing songs. Can't, can't do that. You go to an NFL game and scream your head off with everybody else, but you cannot go to church. You know what I'm saying? Got all these different qualifiers. Sorry, you're attacking our faith. You're attacking our belief. You're attacking what keeps me stable. So I will attack back. I will defy. I will do what is necessary. More so within my home. Yeah, there are things we will not watch. There are things we will not participate in. There are things that we will not do. We have to keep our lives pure from the world, that which is close to home. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, Jesus said, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Cut off your hand, gouge out your eye. Clearly the Lord does not want you know, to cripple the body of Christ. What he's saying is, it is that desperate. So there are many steps you should take before you get to the place where you're staring at the ice pick thinking that's a reasonable answer. Right? You, you need to take whatever drastic measures are necessary in order to purify your life. And if you do not, it will, it will result in your spiritual death and has the potential to result in you being eternally separated from God. Cut off, gouge out the things that would cause you to sin and destroy your relationship with the Lord. We'll wrap this up. Verse 19. When you besiege a city for a long time while making war against it, to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them if you can eat of them. Do not cut them down to use in the siege. If the tree of the field is man's food, only the trees which you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down to build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it is subdued. I would encourage you, I'm going to give you a fairly brief, you know, sort of understanding of this. I would encourage you to take those two verses and what I'm about to see say and go home and meditate upon this. Because the simplicity is just like it is described. If you as a nation of Israel go to war against another nation and you arrive there and you've got to build you know, uh, apparatus, ladders, you know, catapults and whatever else you're going to do to attack a city, use the trees that don't bear fruit, right? And you go, okay, good, common sense, got it, right? Well, there are some other practical applications in your life, right? Because you're talking about, again, things that would destroy your relationship with the Lord. You got to get rid of these people, who are so incredibly ungodly that could potentially cause you to stumble in your walk with the Lord. That's the whole point of this warfare. It isn't just, you guys are cool and they're not, go kill them. All of these nations are incredibly pagan and murderous, and they can't be left to survive. These are the people that are killing their children. These are the people that are killing all of their neighbors trying to dominate and kidnap and, you know, make everyone slaves. And, and the Lord is saying, when you get into that country, you've got to get rid of those people because they are going to destroy you and turn your heart away from worshiping me to where you'll worship pagan gods. You've got to get rid of them. So the, the spiritual application for you and I is there are things in our lives that are fruitful to the Lord that we must protect and we must preserve. There are other things that we can sacrifice in order to destroy the work of our enemy that is against us. You know, I mentioned a moment ago the, uh, you know, what we watch. Uh, you know, you watch the television and you become convinced. You know, I don't know if you're aware of this, 
But statistically, television is portraying that between 60 and 80% of our population is homosexual. You know, uh, one out of every three characters in television programming, one out of every three is homosexual. I want to be very clear. Again, I have no animosity towards the homosexual or the transgender community at all. At all. Love them to pieces. Wish they were here in fellowship with us. Learning to be freed from their sin the same way that you and I were. Okay? Totally open to them being here. Want them to know Christ as I know Christ. Christ delivered me from sexual sin. Many of you, right? One sexual sin is no different than another. Christ's deliverance is the same for all of us. But you turn on the television and it's lying. Lying. We're still, as much as you're hearing about it, this is astonishing, as much as you're hearing about it, our populace is still less than, ready, 1% homosexual. I say that and people are like, they come to me and argue with me and send me emails. Because they're, they're convinced that it's at least 10% and it's probably much, much higher. It absolutely is not. Hey, here's a thought, okay? I, I, you feel like we're going long. We're not. I just We, we only say when it's going to start. We never said when it was going to end. Okay? <laughs> here's the deal. I'm not going to be long. I'm not. <laughs> Don't get nervous. <clears throat> I want to make this point for us. Okay? <clears throat> Homosexuality is a tool of the devil. That isn't because of any hatred or animosity. You must understand. God created Adam and Eve and said what to them? Go and fill the whole world with people. Populate the whole world. Subdue it. Bring it under your control. If you're sitting there right now and you're thinking, well, you know, 6.9, some estimates, 7.2 billion people on planet Earth. We've got a population problem where we're not going to have any room. We're getting overwhelmed. I'll give it to you again. Ready? you got to take notes and you got to do your own research. You can still fit all of the world's population inside Texas. And everybody gets 1,265 square feet of their own. The population is not overwhelming the earth. I always say, have you driven through the Midwest? How many hours of cornfield did you stare at? There's just wide open space. Well, there's lots of places that are not, you know, populable. You can't live in the Arctic Circle. You can't live. Right. Great. Fine. We'll spread over half of the United States. How about that? Imagine how many square feet you'd have to yourself if we evenly divided China amongst all of us. There are three locations that are overpopulated on planet Earth. New York, Hong Kong, Los Angeles. Aren't those pleasant places to hang out if you've ever been to any one of them? So horrid, right? And, and even there, it's not that there are too many people, right? Rarely are you even in New York City unless it's some celebratory gathering where you're shoulder to shoulder with people. Problem in New York is too many cars, right? Too many people congested, stacked up in one place. Lies continuously lies coming through the television, the internet. We, we, we want to stick to the truth, God's word. That's what you want to be taught by. That's what you want to learn from. Homosexuality is where I started, right? Homosexuality does not produce any offspring. There are no children born. So it kills the human race. That was not God's plan of fulfillment. That was not God's plan of fulfillment for the human race. He wants us to love one another. Love is not sexual pleasure. That's lust. 
Love is selfless. That's what agape is. That's what God is doing for us. You, you want to make sure that the things that are close to home, that are affecting you, teaching you, leading you, guiding you, building you, are coming from the word of God. Not the filthiness of the world. Not the influences of the world. Again, I said you're going to need to meditate on these things. John 15, you're familiar with it, verses 1 through 6. I'll read it, and then little comment, we'll pray and go home. John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Have you been pruned by the Lord? Has he cut you back, trimmed you down? I don't know if you're aware with the pruning process, but everything that bears fruit, every spring of the year, it divides its light source and nutrient between two things, wood growth and fruit bearing. If you reduce the wood growth, it puts the balance of that energy into fruit bearing. So if God is pruning you and cutting you back, don't be discouraged. It's for fruitfulness. God is going to discipline you and correct you and minister to you. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Right? The withering. You're all part of the vine. You're here this morning. The leaves are changing. We're seeing fall approach. Whether you're aware of it or not, all of those leaves have already been separated from the tree. The minute that they begin to change color, the minute they begin to change color, they've already been separated from the tree. The cold triggers in the tree a self-defense mechanism because those trees could not keep those leaves on there and catch all of the snow load without being destroyed. Okay, So they need to get rid of the leaves. The minute the cold hits the tree, the Cambrian membrane sends a signal to the leaves and it builds a layer of cork right where the leaf attaches to the tree. And it separates the leaf from the tree. The leaf uses up its remaining chlorophyll and what you see is the actual color of that leaf. The chlorophyll has gone and you're left just seeing the yellow or the orange or the color that is naturally there all the time. It's flooded out by chlorophyll and you can't see it. When the cold, harsh elements of this world affect you, and even if you can't see it, there's a thin layer that has been built between you and Jesus. His life disappears from you. And somebody might even say to you, now I see your true colors as your human nature shines through. We have to be continuously attached to Jesus with his life flowing into us. And then what we produce, chlorophyll and photosynthesis, flows back into him. Crazy as it is, his life gives us life and our life gives him life. It's really strange. This is his words. We are fruitful to him if we are attached to him. You are the first one to notice when your true colors are shining through. You're the first one. And it's much better that you reattach yourself to Christ when you see those faint little changes. If it has to be when you have beet red exploded right in front of everybody and then everyone gets to see, whoa, this is who they really are. That's, that's the wrong time. You've gone way too far. 
if you've gotten to that point. Let Christ be your life. Abide in him. Remain attached to him. There are things to cut off, things to destroy, but not what is fruitful. Not what is fruitful. Maybe you need to get rid of you know, other habits, other time-consuming things. Sacrifice those in order to remain fruitful and to carry on in this warfare. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Read those last couple of verses again. Uh, you know, meditate on them. Deuteronomy 20, 19 and 20, and then John 15. That'll really probably help you see some things about the world and about yourself. Father, we thank you that you've called us here together today, and we pray that you would minister to us, Lord. We, we long to be fruitful to you, but we have to admit our weakness. Build us up, strengthen us, draw us into yourself, that we could see your life in our life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please.